Well, good morning. We're continuing our series through the book of Exodus. I encourage you to join me in chapter 19. This is right before the Ten Commandments. Mike and I are going to do a 10-week series through the Ten Commandments beginning next week. And this is kind of the tee-off for that. The people are at the base of Mount Sinai. This is just a few months after they've left Egypt. And, uh, and they are standing there at the base of Mount Sinai just about to get the law. There are going to be dozens of chapters that follow at exactly this spot where Moses receives the law, and particularly we, we follow this section with the Ten Commandments and then all kinds of instructions about the tabernacle and the whole system of substitutionary atonement and all the rituals that the priests need to go through in order to make it possible for God to live right in the middle of a whole bunch of people. So that's what we're in for, and chapter 19 is all of them coming to this mountain, and they're all ready to have this worship experience, and it all goes very differently from how they were expecting So uh, this begins by God saying, okay, thank you all for coming. Uh, Here's why you're here. This is basically how it starts. If you'll join me in Exodus chapter 19, verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So this is, again, a little bit like a host before a party who would say, okay, uh, I just want to thank you all for coming. My name's Yahweh, and I will be your God for the next many millions of years, and here's what we're in for. And so he's introducing himself, and he's also giving them a bit of an invitation. Here's why you're here. I want to have a special relationship with you. So you remember how I went and got you on eagle's wings and I brought you out of Egypt and I brought you to this place. So he's explaining, okay, here's who we both are and here's what we're in for. I would like you to be my treasured possession, says God, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And you can imagine all of them saying, okay, that sounds good. All right. That sounds great. It's a little bit like a marriage proposal. God brings them out of one house and he brings them to his own place and he says, all right, I want to have a very, very close relationship with you, but it's different from a marriage proposal in the qualifier. If you look at verse five, he says, I want you to be my treasured possession among all the peoples for all the earth is mine. And I love that about God. He doesn't just say, I, I would like to have a close relationship. Would that be all right with you? You know, like maybe in in some grade or whatever, a long time ago, you sent a little note down history class, you know, will you go with me? Yes, no, or whatever. This isn't what God is doing. God basically says, look, I own everything. And so you're already mine, right? And so Zechai and everybody else and every, everyone and everything is mine, but I'd like to have a special relationship with you. That's what he's saying here. And that's awesome. I love the fact that he says he owns everything. He says, I would like you to be my treasured possession among all the peoples for all the earth is mine. He's claiming ownership over them. And he says, I would like to have a special close relationship with you where out of all my possessions, you are a treasure. This is what he's saying to them. This is the basic logic behind meat sacrifice to idols, which we see in the New Testament. 
there were all kinds of false religions flying around the ancient world and meat was being sacrificed to foreign gods. And then after it was uh, sacrificed to so these false gods would be sold in the marketplace. And so some Christians believed it would be wrong to eat that meat because it had been somehow tainted by this false religion. And Paul comes back and he basically says, to paraphrase, he says, look, God owns the meat. You can't claim ownership over something that God already owns. It's all that's happened to that. It's perfectly good barbecued meat. Okay. Because God owns it. And it doesn't matter that some fool comes along and he says, this is mine. I'm going to sacrifice it to a false God. It's still God's meat. So go ahead and eat the meat. There's nothing wrong with the meat. The problem, according to Paul, has to do with the fact that some people think that it's tainted. And if you're a young Christian, you think it's tainted, then you might cause that young Christian to stumble simply because they're confused about the fact that God owns everything. They don't realize God owns everything. You can't take something away from God. Okay, there a, a few years ago, there was some debate about whether or not Christians should drink coffee from Starbucks because Starbucks was doing things with, the, with their health plan that that um, violated some Christian ethics. And so people were thinking there's something wrong with Starbucks coffee. Now, look, there, God owns that coffee. That's God's coffee. It's not Schwartz's coffee. That's not Starbucks's coffee. This is God's coffee. God owns the beans. God made the beans. reason it tastes good is because God made it. That's God's coffee. Okay? Now, you might decide, you might decide, I don't want to give money to an organization where some of that money is going toward things that I find to be unethical. That is a rational way to think. That's fine. There's nothing, you shouldn't feel embarrassed drinking a cup of coffee, like it's somehow tainted by immorality. It's God's coffee. So this is uh, some of the logic here where God is basically claiming ownership over everything. God owns everything. He owns the chair. He owns the carpet here. He owns everything. God owns you. God owns your neighbor. God owns your neighbor's house, your neighbor's car. He owns everything that's in your wallet. It's all God's. And what God is saying here is, look, out of all the things that I made and therefore own, I would like to have a special kind of treasuring relationship with you. So this is what he's saying to the people. Now, that sounds really good, right? Sounds great. And you can imagine them thinking, this sounds promising. (laughs) This sounds promising, but then there's a surprise. There's a surprise. God says, I want to have a close relationship with you. And he scares them to death. Look what happens. This is not going to be this is not going to be an easy relationship. You know how sometimes you meet somebody and you just get along right from the very first second? You just you just everything clicks. That's not how it was for God and the Israelites. <laughs> That's not how it worked. This is going to be a difficult relationship. And why is that? Why is it a difficult relationship between God and the Israelites? Because at the beginning of the Bible, we see Adam walking in, walking in the garden in the cool of the day with God. Uh, so apparently, pre-fall, relationship with God was fairly natural. You'd probably meet God and you'd say, hey, it's God, everybody. Hey, look, you know. And, but this is not how it is after the fall. There's something that happened when Adam and Eve sinned. Sin came into the world and it caused a huge amount of awkwardness in our relationship with God. And so uh, here's what Sinai was like. Let's look at verse 16. God says, hey, I'd like to have a close relationship with you. And then verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings, 
and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. All the people, all the people in the camp trembled. So you think, who's the most confident, strong, stable person you know? If that person was standing there, they would not have been, you know, too cool for this moment. There was nobody too cool for this moment because God was revealing himself in his glory and his holiness in such a massive way that everybody was shaking. Verse 17, then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. So this was a surprise. The beginning of the chapter starts by God saying, hey, I'd like to have a close personal relationship with you. And so they're like, well, all right, that sounds promising. And as they walk into his presence, every one of them are trembling, every one of them. Because God is revealing himself to them through fire and earthquake and smoke and these loud sounds that were like trumpets, which do coincidentally appear several times throughout scripture when God is revealing himself and mankind has an encounter at an an important moment of salvation history. God has this encounter with God that involves something like trumpets. It's just basically a super, super loud noise where everyone's like, In God's presence. So first he says, you're going to be my treasure. And then all the people realize there's a very serious problem here if we're going to have a relationship with God. Because God's glory is overwhelming and even terrifying. So I think chapter 19 of Exodus is a very important chapter. I think you might remember this chapter as you explain the gospel in your own words to your children or to your friends or to your co-workers or whatever this is a really excellent place in scripture to go where we see exactly what god wants from us he wants to be close to us he wants to have a very close relationship to us he uses words like husbands and wives use toward each other my treasure my shotzi you know he wants to be close with us and yet we have this problem (laughs) we have this big problem because when god when God comes into contact with sinners, then there's, there's problems. And so this is the setup for what follows, really in all of Scripture, but especially the next few chapters of the Bible, we see the terms of the relationship. This is not going to be an easy relationship. There are terms in this relationship, beginning with the Ten Commandments and then following a very complicated, very involved process that, that requires thousands and thousands of gallons of blood in order for all of this to work. So the Bible begins, very first few chapters of the Bible, first 11 chapters of the Bible show us the problem. Okay, The problem that we have here begins at the fall, that human sin and original sin begins to infect the human race. And we see the tragic story of Cain and Abel where you had this sibling, sibling rivalry and Cain murders his brother. And all through the rest of the Bible, we see that murder used as an example of what happens when sin comes into mankind. The blood of Abel. He was whacked you know, on the head by his brother and you can imagine that blood going out into the dirt and that 
said something about what was happening in mankind. That blood said something. It, it testified, it spoke to the universe and to all of us about what happens and the consequences of sin. Following that terrible story of Cain and Abel, you have the story of the flood where wickedness had covered the entire earth. Following that story, you think, okay, we're going to get a fresh start here and everything's going to be good. And wickedness continues to be inherited and passed along through all of these people, causing division between God and mankind and between mankind and mankind, which we see the story at the Tower of Babel. So these first few stories, the prehistory, if you will, of Scripture shows us the problem that sin creates division between human beings and sin creates division between us and God. Then God begins to fix the problem. He starts this story by restoring, redeeming, repairing in his relationship with Abraham. And that restoration process begins with very simple promises. Very simple promises. He's beginning to put the cosmos back in order. So, through a whole series of events and a few hundred years after those promises to Abraham, here we are at the foot of Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19. We think, great, God and mankind are back together, interacting again. It's a first. This is a first since the fall, since Eden. God and mankind are interfacing again. You have an encounter with God and mankind. You think this is progress, right? Except nobody's walking with God in the cool of the day here. Nobody's walking with God in the cool of the day. There's fire, there's earthquakes, and pretty soon people are going to start dying left and right. You know, there's a section in the middle of Leviticus that illustrates this point. You remember that these next few books of the Bible all happen within a fairly condensed period of time. So I'm just fast-forwarding just a short period of time, but... Um, but quite a few chapters of the Bible. And you don't need to turn there if you don't want to. I'm going to read some of this to you. But I'd like to illustrate this point a little more clearly. In Leviticus chapter 9, we're told that on the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. And he said to Aaron, take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering. Okay, so this is going to be the key to everything. The problem here is sin. And God is creating a very complicated and elaborate and effective process for dealing with sin. And so he says, okay, Aaron, take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord and say to the people of Israel, take a male goat for a sin offering and a calf and a lamb, both a year old without blemish for a burnt offering and an ox and a ram for peace offerings to sacrifice before the Lord and a grain offering mixed with oil. For today, the Lord will appear to you. Okay, so here's the deal. Here are the terms. We're going to interact with God here. We're going to step into God's presence. The only way this works is if somebody dies because we're sinners. So what God does is he creates a substitutionary process whereby these animals die instead of the people, which makes it possible to interact with God. And they brought what Moses commanded in front of the tent of meeting and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. Okay, so they've done this already in Leviticus 19, scared them to death. So they're like, okay, now what do we do here? How exactly are we going to do this? And they've all got their animals and they're all probably making noises and stuff. And we're about to see a lot of blood. Moses said, this is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Okay, so these are the terms of having a relationship with God. Now, the next few verses of chapter 9 tell us that Aaron did exactly what Moses told him to do. So that's important because God had revealed the law to Moses. And Moses 
then tells Aaron, and this is the inauguration of Aaron as the high priest. And so he does exactly what he's supposed to do. He cuts him in exactly the right place. He sprinkles the blood exactly where it's supposed to go. He waves the thigh of the bull at exactly the right time. And all this stuff, he does exactly what he's supposed to do. And then watch the result. At the end of Leviticus chapter 9, Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Pretty awesome worship service here. But also, this is not walking with God in the cool of the day yet, right? This is still pretty intimidating stuff. This is still God in his holiness, in his glory, cannot be in the presence of sin without his wrath punishing that sin. And so here are all the people and they've come into his presence and they kill these animals and they put them on the altar and they step back and whoosh, this fire comes down from heaven, scares everybody to death and they shout and they fall on their faces. So this is what relationship with God looks like in its purest form. Like this is the best interaction possible at this point in salvation history with god is that we're all on our faces trembling as god burns the stuff on the altar that's that is the ultimate worship service that was possible at that moment in salvation history but again it's progress putting the pieces back together putting the cosmos back in order god redeeming god saving this huge problem god solving this huge problem that we see in the first few chapters of the Bible. The goal here is to make these people my treasured possession. The goal is fellowship. It's exactly what God said to Pharaoh. That let my people go, that they may serve me in the desert. Let my people go, uh, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. So this is all about worship, and God is putting these pieces back together. So this is good. It's reverent, but it is still not the intimacy that God is ultimately looking for with humanity. It's not the close relationship that God is looking for. Now, you add to all of this the fact that here back in Leviticus chapter 9, Aaron did this perfect worship service. He did exactly what Moses told him to do. Everything went well. Everyone's still trembling. And Aaron's sons, they decide, wow, that was pretty cool. Look what dad just did. That's pretty awesome. Let's you and me go do something. And so they offered what the Bible calls strange fire. And we're not sure what that was. But they were doing some kind of a fire religious thing that had nothing to do with what Moses had said to do. And so what happened? God killed them. So this was their worship service, their first good worship service. Everything seems really good. And then these kids go out there and they're like, hey, this is cool. Remember the fire and all that? Boom. And they, they fall over dead. Watch what God says to Aaron at the end of this because he's grieving over his dead sons. Leviticus 10. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And the fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. In other words, you don't goof around in God's presence. And your boys were goofing around. 
publicly, right in front of about a million people, watching your boys goof around in God's presence. So Aaron held his peace. So this is what relationship with God looks like at this point. And you remember a few chapters later, you know, Moses himself, he strikes the rock, not allowed to go into the promised land. This is a pretty intense relationship. So these are tough lessons about encountering God. It's a major recalibration. They walk up to Mount Sinai a little bit too comfortable. And they, and they get seriously recalibrated on what it actually is going to look like to have a relationship with this holy, one, true God. Now, everybody wants a close relationship with God. Everybody in here wants to have some kind of interaction with God. This is going to be tricky because God is holy. And he has got to punish sin, and all of us are sinners. And so, as we see through the rest of the Pentateuch, people start dying left and right. The whole relationship with God is dangerous. The encounter requires elaborate preparation, requires a mediator, which Pastor Mike talked about last week. There's lots and lots of blood They have to be careful about paying attention to detail. So this is the relationship with God at this point. So Exodus chapter 19 prepares us for everything that's going to follow. It's a very sobering passage. This is why the message of the New Testament is so incredible. Because we are this morning coming into the presence of exactly the same God. Exactly the same God who flame-broiled Aaron's sons for doing the service wrong. I mean, burnt them in front of about a million people for doing the service wrong. We are coming into the presence of exactly that same God. Now, how is that possible? For us to come into his presence with any kind of uh, confidence. That's a good Bible word. How is it that we can be confident I mean, you might think, ooh, we might die if we go to church today because the pastor might not do it exactly right. So maybe we'll stay home and watch church on TV. (laughs) I mean, if a relationship with God, if worship is actually dangerous with God, then maybe, like, why would you even come? Why would you come to a service like this? And this is why the message of the New Testament is so incredible. Because Jesus Christ makes all the difference. Exactly the same God, except the mediator isn't Moses anymore. It's Jesus Christ. Now, let me make a couple of connections. First of all, probably all of us, at least most of us, are Gentiles, meaning we're not Jewish. Uh, There may be a a couple of Jewish people in here, uh, but I I can't think of any off the top of my head. I think most of us are non-Jews except that all the promises that were given to Abraham so long ago, thousands of years ago, can be ours, not by some kind of racial inheritance, not by any kind of genetic connection, but by faith. We become the descendants of Abraham by faith. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, then we are called the children of God. We, be, we get grafted into the family. It's adoption. We get adopted into this family. All right, which is why the Apostle Peter says all of those same promises are given to you. You've got to hear this in First Peter chapter 2. This is First Peter 2, 
and he's talking to the church. And listen to these words. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Those are interesting phrases. They come right out of Exodus 19. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So you can hear him there quoting straight out of that paragraph in Exodus 19, where God says, hey, thank you all for coming. Here's the kind of relationship that I'd like to have with you. And now all of a sudden, a couple of thousand years go by. Jesus Christ comes on the scene and that relationship is possible. You can hear him quoting from Exodus chapter 19, God wanting to have a close personal relationship with us. So now here's the question then. What is our experience? When we come into God's presence, are we coming to Mount Zion? Are we coming to Mount Sinai? Where we come into this terrible presence with thunder and lightning we all just sang this beautiful song how great is our god like did that make your heart skip a beat i mean i've been studying this and so it made me feel a little uh, differently than i usually feel when we sing that song how great is our god how great is our god and i'm imagining mount sinai with the thunder and the lightning i mean you'd think it would almost be helpful to us right if god demonstrated his glory like that And so here we come into the presence of this exact same God. Are we coming to thunder, fire, blood, earthquakes, trumpets, and terror? And the answer to that question is no. We are not coming to Mount Sinai. In fact, Mike showed you pictures last week of places where Sinai might be, but there's all kinds of debate among archaeologists where Sinai... We don't even know where Sinai is. We are not coming to Mount Sinai. We're coming to a better mountain. Listen to this in Hebrews chapter 12. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. Again, he's referring back to Exodus 19. The writer goes on, he says, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you, you Christian, you post Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again. Christian, you church, you Gentile adopted into this family, given all these same promises. You have come to Mount Zion. And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So the key thing here is that we're coming to a different mountain this morning. We're not coming to Mount Sinai. We're coming to Mount Sinai and we're filled with terror. We're not totally sure if we don't do it quite exactly right, we could die. We're coming to a totally different mountain. We're not coming to a mountain filled with terror and with blood flying all over the place. You can smell the death around a sacrifice. I've seen one in Israel. The Samaritans continue to perform the Passover every year. And so I got right down in there with my camera and everything. They're cutting all these animals apart. I mean, there's a smell to sacrifice. Death is a terrible thing. So here you've got Sinai surrounded by blood and fire and smoke and terror. 
We're not coming to that mountain. We're coming to Mount Zion. And at this mountain, instead of darkness and gloom and a tempest, a storm, and when God speaks as an earthquake, instead, this mountain is surrounded by a whole bunch of angels in festal clothing. In other words, they're wearing their celebration clothes, which is kind of cool that angels have different outfits, and I guess, you know, they wear their celebration outfits at this particular mountain. We're coming to a different mountain. Same holy God. Same God. He still must punish sin with death. That has to happen in order for us to come into his presence. But at Mount Zion, Jesus is there. Not Moses saying, here, everybody, come on over here, and people might die and things like this, including his nephews. No, instead we have Jesus saying, it's going to be all right. Come on, I already paid I did all the dying that you could do. Because, the, the, you see, the death of Jesus Christ has this infinite quality. It covers all of us and all of our sins if we repent and put our trust in him. So when, not like Moses, but when Jesus grabs us by the hand, he says, come on, we're going to go right into the Holy of Holies. I, I want you to meet my father. And the reason we can do that with some amount of confidence is because Jesus is the mediator and Jesus is the one who's bringing us there. And you think, well, but I'm sinful and you can't even believe what I was thinking about last night and I'm not sure that I totally confessed it exactly right this morning and all of this stuff and I'm sinful, I have a history of sin. I'm not even sure that God has revealed 1% of my actual sin. Have I confessed it all? I'm not sure. Do I even want to? I'm confused. I'm totally psychologically messed up and you want me to walk into the presence of the holy God where I might die? And Jesus is like... If, look, if I'm your mediator, I've done all the dying that can be done here. And so when blood is being sprinkled, it's not sprinkled of, you know, goat sprinkling. It's not bull blood sprinkling, but it's the blood of Jesus Christ, which paid for sin once for all. So if you pray a prayer like, Jesus Christ, please forgive me for my sins. I pray that all the punishment for my sins would be put on Jesus Christ and that his death all those years ago would pay the penalty for my sin. And I put my trust in you. I'm going to do my best to follow you. I know that I'm going to stumble, but I pray that you'd keep me from totally falling. And that's the kind of confidence that we have to enter into the Holy of Holies, this holy presence that kills sin. And there's a smile there. Not a God who's like, what are you here for? How'd you get in here? And Jesus is like, no, no, it's okay. No, no, this is your heavenly father. The New Testament words, our father. And he's adopted you and he's thrilled to see you come on over here tell me about your day what's going on and you look at jesus like it's all right it's all right i already did all the dying that could be done there's angels that are surrounding this place that are celebrating and it's a place of joy and it's a place of light verse 22 innumerable angels in festal gathering and you remember god telling pharaoh in exodus 5 let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness well now finally that feast is happening It's not this awkward, hopefully we don't do it quite, hopefully we do it right so that we don't die halfway through the meal or something like this. But now you actually have the festal gathering. Instead of a place of terror, people falling on their faces with fire and blood, now we have celebration, the kind of celebration that God is after. Verse 23, God is referred to as the judge of all. Ooh, that's scary, right? Because it's a capital J judge and he judges sin. Accept that, that's immediately followed up with God, the judge of all, and spirits of the righteous made perfect. So again, it's the same God. 
As Pastor Mike was saying last week, there's not a different God in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's the same God. He's still the judge, and he still punishes sin with death. You know, when people say, oh, there's a difference between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. Have you read the book of Revelation where Jesus gets on a horse and tramples sinners in this big vat so that the blood flows out of Jerusalem as high as a horse's bridle? What are you talking about, different God in the Old Testament and the New Testament? Of course God still punishes sin. But your sin, if you've confessed it and put your trust in Jesus Christ, if you've confessed it, has already been punished. And so you can walk straight into the presence of God. God does not change. It's the same God at both mountains, but at Mount Sinai, the people were sinful and God's holiness burned against them. At Mount Sinai, the people are, or excuse me, at Mount Zion that we go to, we're also sinful. But all of that sin has been paid for by Jesus Christ. And in verse 24, we're told about Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, sprinkled with blood. Blood that speaks a better word than Abel. So it's as if blood could talk. You remember in those early chapters of Genesis, the blood coming out of Abel, it spoke a word. It spoke a word about original sin, about punishment, about the division between human beings as a result of sin, about the distance between humanity and the God that created us. And so the blood of Abel spoke a horrible word. But the blood of Jesus Christ speaks a better word. We want it to cover us. We want that. We need that. We're going to drink that blood in just a few moments here when we celebrate communion. Abel's blood showed us the consequences of sin. But Jesus' blood pays for that sin once for all. Now, let me just pull this all together in about five more minutes here. I'm not saying that now we all just waltz into God's presence because he's just all warm and fuzzy and, and it feels like a Lego movie or something just walking into God's presence. It's fun, it's great, it's awesome. No. No, he's the same God. It's just we can have confidence. And so both of these things are important for us as we're thinking about, well, how do I pray later on today? How do I lead my children in prayer before they go to bed tonight? You know, what? How, what, what should be my posture as I'm praying or as I'm confessing my sin? Or what should our worship services feel like? Those kinds of things. What I'm not, I'm not saying, well, God is all just warm and fuzzy now because this sin doesn't matter. That's not what I'm saying at all. It's an interesting, uh, Mike and I are both quoting C.S. Lewis here today. Let me quote from one of his letters that he wrote to a friend. Um, I'm going to read a couple of paragraphs. He said, My own experience in reading the Gospels was at one stage even more depressing than yours. Everyone told me that I should find there a figure whom I couldn't help loving. Well, I could. They told me I would find moral perfection, but one sees so very little of him in ordinary situations that I couldn't make much of that either. Indeed, some of his behavior seemed to me open to criticism. For example, accepting an invitation to dine with a Pharisee and then loading him with torrents of abuse. Now, the truth is, says Lewis, I think that the sweetly attractive human Jesus is a product of 19th century skepticism produced by people who were ceasing to believe in his divinity but wanted to keep as much of Christianity as they could. It is not what an unbeliever coming to the records with an open mind will at first find there. 
The first thing you really find is that we are simply not invited, so to speak, to pass any moral judgment on him, however favorable. It is only too clear he is going to do whatever judging there is. It is we who are being judged, sometimes tenderly, sometimes with stunning severity, but always from the top down. Have you noticed that you can hardly free your imagination to picture him as shorter than yourself? The first real work of the Gospels on a fresh reader is and ought to be to raise very accurately the question, who or what is this? For there's a good deal in the character which, unless he really is what he says he is, is not lovable nor even tolerable. If he is, then, of course, it's another matter. Nor will it then be surprising if much remains puzzling to the end. For if there is anything in Christianity, we're now approaching something which will never be fully comprehensible. See, we have the problem now of movies that do this to Jesus Christ, making him kind of an effeminate hippie that's just very loving and easy and so on. That's not the Jesus Christ of the Gospels. See, God is very different from us. And because of the work of Jesus Christ, we are able to have confidence when we enter into his presence. He has made us his treasured possession. He loves us. He wants to have a very close relationship with us. But he is not our buddy. There are many things that God does that are mysterious to us that we think, why would he do it that way? And that's not an inappropriate thought as we realize, wow, I mean, God could have done this and he did that. How can he be good and do that? Like, have you ever thought that? God is not us. God is very different from us. And he found a brilliant way of communicating to us in an understandable way by sending his son Jesus to be born of a virgin and become a man and grow up and say things like a human being would say. And as a result, we can have a relationship with him. But there are many things that he does that are very transcendent, very different from us. So what should my posture be? We want to meet God. We want to have interaction with God, but we all need a recalibration event. And we need this daily, we need this hourly, we need it this morning. We need to be recalibrated like the Jews were at Mount Sinai. We need to remember that even this God that is being talked about here in Hebrews, where we can boldly approach him and so on. You remember how that chapter ends, and Joe, wrote it, uh, Joe read it just a few minutes ago. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, For our God is a consuming fire. You see, that's New Testament. God does not change. And so Christ does give us confidence to enter into the holy presence of God the Father, the Creator. And we've got to learn how to balance our reverence and our confidence as we interact with Him. Let's close in prayer. Lord God in heaven, we thank You for the Scriptures that explain to us what you are really like. I pray that you would help us to understand who you are. I pray that you would help us to understand the gospel, which gives us confidence as we enter into your presence. I pray as we go about our private lives, uh, tossing up prayers from time to time throughout the day and even formal worship services like this, I pray that you would help us to approach you correctly and accurately. Lord, we are so looking forward to heaven when many of these mysteries will be revealed, our sin nature will be removed. I pray that you would keep us faithful until the return of your son. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.